You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey, it's Adam. Today we have an episode from our friends at Vox Conversations, where Sean Illing recently spoke with British author Johan Hari, whose book Stolen Focus is about attention and the psychology of modern life. I'll let them take it from here. My ability to focus on any one thing for an extended period of time isn't what it used to be. And it was never that great to begin with. And while this is not the kind of thing that's easily measured, I can feel it in my own life. Reading, writing, watching a long movie, these things feel harder than they used to. And it's not surprising. We live in a distracted world, almost certainly the most distracted world in human history. And if you're part of this circus, you are drowning in options and gadgets and screens, and you're being pulled in a million directions seemingly at once all of the time. Some of this is just happenstance, but there are also entire industries that exist to keep us in this distracted state. If you spend any time online, you already know this. You're constantly stalked by advertisers and product peddlers, and even by the platforms themselves. Your attention is constantly being harvested and sold. That's the whole business model of big tech. A new book called Stolen Focus by the British writer Johan Hari takes a close look at what's happening and what's happened to our attention. Hari argues that we're all becoming lost in our own lives, which feel more and more like a parade of diversions. His book isn't exactly a blueprint for escaping that. And to the extent that it is, I'm skeptical. But it does diagnose a problem that we probably don't take seriously enough. So I talked to Hari about what happened to our attention, who he thinks stole it, and why our collective distraction sickness is a genuine crisis. Johan Hari, welcome to the show. Hey, Sean, you're a very rare instance of someone who said my name right first time. I once waited for six hours in an emergency room because they were calling for Joanna Harry to come forward. So I'm very impressed that you got that right with no rehearsal. That's actually delightful to hear because I was a little worried that I would find a way to butcher it. <laughs> Even though I knew it, I figured I would butcher it anyhow. So exactly. something I've heard you say, I think maybe in another interview, you said that every book you write is an attempt to unpack a mystery. So what's the mystery here that you're trying to unravel? I noticed with each year that passed, it felt like my own attention was getting worse. It felt like things that require deep focus, like reading a book, watching long films, things that are very deep to my sense of self, 
were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. Do you know what I mean? Like I could do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I felt like I could see this happening to most of the people I knew. I felt like it was particularly bad for some of the young people in my life, a lot of whom seemed to be kind of whirring at the speed of Snapchat. But for a long time, I told myself, well, you know, every generation struggles with attention. You can read letters from monks a thousand years ago, almost a thousand years ago, where one of them says to the other, you know, my attention ain't what it used to be. And I told myself for a long time, you know, every generation thinks this. It's just that you're getting older. And as you get older, your mind deteriorates and you mistake your own deterioration for the deterioration of the world. But I had a kind of particularly distressing experience with a young person in my life that made me look at some of the kind of very provisionally at some of the early evidence on this, you know, a study by Professor Gloria Marx discovered that the average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes on average. For every one child who was identified as having serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified as having that problem. I started to think, well, maybe there's something to see here. I need to find out. So I ended up going on a really big journey all over the world, obviously, before the plague began, from Miami to Melbourne to Moscow. And I interviewed over 200 of the leading experts in the world on attention and focus. And I learned from them that there's scientific evidence for 12 factors that can make your attention better or can make it worse. And loads of the factors that can make your attention worse have been significantly rising in recent years. And I came to believe that we really are in a quite serious attention crisis, one that helps us to understand a lot of problems we're facing, both as individuals and collectively, and that we need to understand that our attention did not collapse. Our attention has been stolen from us by these very big forces, and that requires us to think about our attention problems in quite a different way and opens up a very different set of solutions. Well, I'll just emphasize what may be too obvious a point, but sometimes the obvious is the easiest to miss. You just use the word stolen, the title of your book is Stolen Focus. So the implication is that something has been done to us, which is not the same thing as saying we've lost something or given something away. Conspiracy may be the wrong word, but you really do think that this is not something that just happened. It's deliberate and organized. Is that right? Yeah, some of it's deliberate and organized. Some of it is an unintentional effect of bigger changes. Uh, so I'd argue that it's those two factors. Professor Joel Nigg, one of the leading experts on children's attention problems in the United States, who's in Portland, Oregon, said to me, we need to ask if we're living in what he called an attentional pathogenic environment, an environment in which for almost all of us, attention is becoming harder because of deep changes. Now, some of that is an unintentional effect of changes, deep social changes. So I'll give you an example. I'm sure we're going to get to some of the intentional ones. So let's look at an unintended one, if that's okay. I think it helps us to understand it. Let's think about our food supply. So there's this really interesting new movement called nutritional psychiatry that looks at how the ways in which what we eat hugely affects our mental functioning. And I spent a lot of, interviewed a lot of experts on this. And I learned from them that there's currently scientific evidence for three ways in which the food we eat is profoundly damaging our focus and attention. This is something I didn't even think about when I started working on the book. Um, the first way is that the diet we currently eat causes huge energy spikes and energy crashes. So this was explained to me first by a brilliant British nutritionist called Dale Pinnock. So let's imagine you eat the traditional you know, American breakfast, the kind of thing I grew up with. You have either sugary cereal or you have white bread. 
What that does is it releases a huge amount of energy really quickly. It releases a huge amount of glucose in your brain. And you feel great. You feel like you've finally woken up, right? Right. And then an hour or two later, you're sitting at your desk or your child is sitting at their desk and your energy hugely crashes and you experience brain fog. Brain fog is when you really struggle to focus and pay attention. And you don't get your attention back until you have another either caffeine or another sugary carby treat. We live on a kind of roller coaster of energy spikes and energy crashes, which causes patches of brain fog throughout the day. Another way in which the way we eat is profoundly affecting our ability to focus and pay attention is your brain needs certain nutrients in order to fully develop and to be able to function to an optimum level. And the diet we eat, and there's lots of evidence for this, is currently seriously lacking in many of those nutrients. An obvious one is omega-3s. Many of us are not getting the levels we need. Nutritional supplements don't make up for it. The third way is that it's not just that our current diets lack things that we need for our brain to function. They also contain chemicals that often act on us like drugs. There was a really interesting study in Southampton in Britain where they took 297 kids and they split them into two groups. And one of the groups was given, I think it was just water or plain drink. And the second group was given a cocktail, not an alcoholic cocktail, obviously, of chemicals that occur in commonly found supermarket foods, candies like M&Ms. And the kids who drank the second concoction were significantly more likely to be manic, to have attention problems. So there's a range of ways. And it's important to understand those three changes are not the result of individual failure. They are the result of a profound transformation of the food supply system. So that's one example where obviously it's not that anyone in the food industry sat down and thought, how can we steal people's attention? That wasn't their intent. Of course, that's not how it worked. But they made a series of profound changes. Um, that's most of our diet now. That, that's an example of a big change that's profoundly negatively affected our attention that wasn't intentional. But I would argue it has stolen a large part of our focus. We can come to some of the intentional ones too, if you like. Oh, we're going to get to that in just a minute when we talk about the tech world. But before we get there, let me just ask, again, what may be an obvious question, but I'm not sure it is. And that is, why is this something people should really care about? I mean, why is the assault on our attention, for lack of a better word, a crisis? The way I would begin to think about this is I would, I would say to anyone listening, think about anything you've ever achieved in your life whether it's setting up a business, learning to play the guitar, being a good parent. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when attention and focus break down, and I think there's persuasive evidence they are breaking down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down and your ability to solve your problems is significantly diminished. And I think what you get when you can't focus, so I think about periods of my own life when I've struggled to focus, it's like you become a kind of stump of yourself. You can sense what you would have been if you'd been able to apply yourself, but you're just a diminished thing. You're a diminished person. I think we can particularly see this with children who can't focus and pay attention, right? Nobody wants to have a child who can't pay attention because you can see that when your child can't pay attention, they're much less capable of growth, of setting and achieving goals, of solving problems. They're just less effective in the world. Now, I think that's true. And My book is sort of about attention at two levels. One is individual attention. All those things are true of individual attention. It's also true of collective attention. A society that can't pay attention to problems together, that consists of adult people who are interacting primarily through mechanisms that make them angry, 
is a society that can't solve its crises. And we all know we're facing at the moment an unprecedented series of tripwires and trapdoors that we have to deal with. And, you know, I think a lot about, how old are you, Sean? I'll be 40 in two and a half weeks. Right. So you're three years younger than me. I'm curious about whether you remember this. I've been thinking a lot about the ozone layer crisis, right? It's one of my earliest political memories. For younger listeners who don't know, the planet is protected by a layer of ozone that keeps us safe from the sun's rays. And when I was a kid, it was discovered that we were releasing a chemical in hairsprays and fridges called CFCs that was damaging the ozone layer. And it was creating a hole in the ozone layer above the Arctic that threatened to melt the Arctic. And if you think about what happened then, I am not nostalgic about the 1980s. There were lots of things wrong with the politics of the 1980s. But you think about what happened. That science was explained to ordinary people. They listened. They distinguished it from lies and conspiracy theories. And ordinary people banded together and pressured their politicians to act. And even quite unlikely politicians who were very hostile to government regulation, Margaret Thatcher, George Bush Sr., came together. They united with very different political perspectives, the Soviet Union. They all banned CFCs. And as a result, the ozone layer is now healing. I feel absolutely confident that would not happen now if the ozone layer crisis happened. I think you would get some people who would wear ozone layer badges. You would get other people who would film themselves spraying CFCs into the atmosphere to own the libs and make them cry. You would get people saying, how do we even know the ozone layer exists? Maybe George Soros made the hole in the ozone layer. We would become lost. We would not be able to summon the collective attention. There's been an assault on both our individual and our collective attention. They're, of course, they're different phenomena, but they're deeply interrelated. And I think that we need to deal with both. I'm glad you went there because I think on the individual level, it's easier to see the cost of losing control of our attention. But I do think there's a buried political cost because what we're talking about here is the manufacturing of mass distraction. And that, to me, is just another way of manufacturing mass consent. But it's a kind of passive consent that comes from a population that's too divided and diverted to mobilize in defense of anything. And that's a big problem. I think that's a brilliant way of putting it. I would say it's even worse. It's not that they can't mobilize in defense of anything. It's a bit like what Mark Twain said. It's not what people don't know that's the problem. It's what they know that just ain't so. Actually, often they end up being mobilized absolutely sincerely in crazy causes, absolutely mad delusions. Think about the QAnon conspiracy theory where it's interesting when I started working on the book and I said to people, I'm thinking of writing a book about attention and focus. People said to me, oh, so you're writing a book about smartphones, right? And what struck me actually in the research is there are aspects of our technology that are profoundly damaging our ability to focus that can be fixed. This is not inherent to the tech itself. It's important to say, though, the way big tech wants us to frame this debate is are you pro-tech or anti-tech? And that framing induces fatalism because we're not going to convert to join the Amish. We're not going to give up our technology. So you just go, oh, well, obviously I'm going to be pro-tech because what's the alternative, right? Um, actually, the question is not are you pro-tech or anti-tech? The question is what tech do we want working for whose interests, for what goals, right? That's the key question. It's the business model. Exactly. So the heart of this is the business model. And it's very simple to explain. So you open Facebook or any of the mainstream social media apps, and those companies begin to make money immediately in two ways. The first way is obvious. We all know how it works. You see ads and they make money from the ads. The second way is much more important. Everything you do on Facebook is scanned and sorted by Facebook to build a profile of you. 
right? So let's say that you like, I don't know, Bette Midler, Donald Trump, and you tell your mom you just bought some diapers. Okay, so Facebook is figuring out. Its algorithms are scanning you. Okay, this is a man who likes Bette Midler. He's probably gay. A right-winger. This is someone who likes Donald Trump. He's probably conservative. And he's talking about diapers. Okay, he's got a baby. Because they're building up this profile of you to sell you to advertisers, as people in Silicon Valley always say. You are not the customer of Facebook. You're the product they sell to the advertisers. Because if I'm an advertiser selling diapers, you don't want to market to me. I don't have a baby. You want to market to you. You've got a baby, right? So the whole machinery, this whole business model has an effect, which is every time you pick up Facebook and you scroll, they make money. And every time you put it down, their revenue streams disappear. So all of their algorithmic power, all of their engineering genius, all of the mo- some of the cleverest people in the world are dedicated towards one goal. How do I get Sean to pick up his phone more often and scroll as long as we possibly can? That's it. Just like the CEO of KFC wants you to buy KFC, the CEOs of all the social media companies want you to pick up their app as much as possible and scroll as long as possible. So they are designed to maximally invade your attention. This isn't just the view of the dissidents. Sean Parker, one of the biggest initial investors in Facebook, said, exact quote is in the book, I think what he said was, we designed Facebook to maximally invade people's attention. We knew what we were doing and we did it anyway. God only knows what it's doing to our kids' brains. That's what they say. Now, that has all sorts of effects on our individual attention. But I would argue there's an even more catastrophic political effect, and we now know the leaked documents from Facebook show this as well, which is something terrible happens when a business model that is designed to keep you scrolling bumps into, unintentionally, this wasn't the intention of anyone at Facebook or any of the other social media apps, an underlying psychological truth about human beings that's been known about by psychologists for a very long time. It's called negativity bias. Negativity bias is really simple. You will stare at something that upsets and angers you longer than you will stare at something that makes you feel good. Anyone who's ever seen a car accident on the highway knows how this works. You stared longer at the car accident than you did at the pretty flowers across the street, right? This is very deep in human nature. Even 10-week-old babies will stare longer at an angry face than a happy face. There's almost certainly an obvious reason in our evolution, which is our ancestors who were more vigilant to anger and danger were more likely to survive and become our ancestors. The ancestors who stared at the pretty flowers when there was danger around didn't get to be our ancestors. But this has a terrible effect when it combines with algorithms designed to maximize engagement. If you want to understand how, just picture two teenage girls who go to the same party and they leave and get the same bus home. And one of them does a status update where she says, that was a really nice party. I had a great time. Everyone was lovely. And the other teenage girl goes, Karen was a fucking skank at that party. She stank. She looks like shit. Her boyfriend's a prick. Everyone was an asshole. I spent too much time with my niece trying to decode her social media side, I'm eerily familiar with how these people talk. So the algorithm will scan both those status updates and it will put the first status update into a few people's feeds. But because the algorithm knows that angry and upsetting words make people engage for longer, stare at them longer and argue longer, it will put that second Facebook status update into vastly more people's feeds, right? Now, that's bad enough at the level of teenage girls. But in terms of the effect on collective attention that you're talking to, you know, we now know that led to the effect. Facebook's own data scientists discovered that one quarter of all the people in Germany who joined neo-Nazi groups joined them because the Facebook algorithm specifically recommended that they join them 
You may want to join, it said, followed by a neo-Nazi group. If we're living in a machinery that is constantly promoting the most angering and enraging voices, that destroys our collective ability to focus and pay attention. We cannot think coherently then. I spoke to a not terribly known researcher at down at the University of North Florida a couple of years ago. His name was David Courtright. Mm-hmm. And he's an addiction expert who coined this phrase, I think he coined it, limbic capitalism. And you know, the limbic system is a part of the brain that deals with pleasure and motivation and reward. And he made a distinction that I never forgot. He said, it's not just that we're responding to these devices that constantly barrage our attention. We're actively anticipating them. And that's the thing about addictive behaviors. They don't simply reward, they condition us. And that seems to be what you're talking about here. And that's even a deeper problem than just simply being entranced by these gadgets. I think that's a really good way of putting it. And they condition us in all sorts of ways. One of the things I did for the book was, and to be honest, it was just because I was so frazzled and so afraid of what was happening to my own attention. It was something I needed to do for myself is I took three months completely off the internet. I went to a place called Provincetown in Cape Cod, and I I had no smartphone and I had no laptop that could get online. And it was really interesting because in the medium term, the incredible effect was that my te- I was stunned by how much my attention came back. But there was a moment early on that I think speaks to that limbic capitalism point where it was about two or three weeks in. And I remember I was, I can picture it so clearly, I was walking down the beach And I was seeing this thing that enrages me everywhere I go. So Provincetown is one of the most beautiful places in the world. And it was full of people who were not looking at it at all. They were just staring at their phones or using it as a backdrop for selfies, right? And normally when I see that, I want to go up to people and go, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not being present at your own life. You're not showing up at the most beautiful places in the world. You're not being present. But instead, I wanted to go, give me that phone, me right? I wanted to grab it and look at my social media because Simone de Beauvoir, the great French philosopher, she once said that when she became an atheist, it was like the world had gone silent. Mm. And when I was deprived of these thin, insistent signals from social media, it felt like the world had gone silent. I had spent whatever it was at that point, 15 years being trained in a Skinnerian way to crave the rewards that these apps provide, the hearts, the likes, the retweets. And when they were gone, I initially felt relief and then I felt a terrible crash. I was like, where's my signal? Because no normal social interaction floods you with hearts, right? That would be a, a very odd social interaction indeed. And obviously I had to then, I sort of then realized, oh, I've created a vacuum that I now need to fill with meaning. I think you're absolutely right that these things, as they currently operate, and it's very important for us to stress, They don't have to work this way. There are alternatives. We've got to fight to get to those alternatives. But you're absolutely right about how they affect us. What is it that really makes this truly new or different or alarming? As you said, people have been complaining about these kinds of things forever, from the ancient Greeks worried about the effects of the written word to medieval monks to anti-internet hysterics. I mean, really, what makes this so unique and different than any of those episodes? I think it's a combination of factors. I think a good analogy is for us to think about the obesity crisis. And I was helped to think about this by Professor Joel Nigg, who I mentioned before. If you look at a picture of a beach 
in the United States in the 1970s. I really urge people to Google one now, pause and Google one. It's really weird. Everyone is what we would call slim or buff. Literally everyone. It's bizarre. You look at them at first, you think, well, hang on, was this like a, a healthy person's meeting? And then you look at the figures and there was almost no obesity in the United States in the early 1970s. And what happened is there was a series of profound social changes. Our food supply system changed. We alluded to some of the ways before. We moved from eating mostly fresh and nutritious food we prepared ourselves to eating overwhelmingly processed food that bears very little relationship to food in nature. We built cities that it's almost impossible to bike and walk around. And also we became more stressed and that makes you want to comfort eat more. So a combination of big social changes came together to cause the average American has gained 22 pounds since then, right? So we can see that there's been these big social changes that have led to this a disaster, a, a health disaster, right? So you could say, well, people have always struggled with their weight. And it's absolutely true. There's always been some people who struggle with their weight. And what Professor Nig said to me is that the attention crisis may be, I'm paraphrasing here, like the obesity crisis, that there seem to be some very big changes in the way we live that are contributing to a very significant rise. He obviously works specifically on children's attention problems, but more generally. So I, I think there's, there's good reason to believe this. There's always been concern about human attention. It is a perennial human problem. I mean, you could say, you know, people have always worried about death. So why are you worried about the plague, right? But the fact that these are perennial human struggles doesn't mean we don't have moments when they become acutely worse. And I think there is evidence they're becoming acutely worse. And also, most importantly, the factors that are invading attention, and we've, we've touched on a few, but there's many more we haven't yet. Many of them are poised to become more invasive. Think about Paul Graham, one of the leading investors in Silicon Valley, said on the current trajectory, the world will be more addictive in the next 40 years than the last 40 years. Think about how much more compelling TikTok is to a child than Facebook. The technologies that are hacking and invading our attention because of this business model are only going to become more sophisticated if we don't deal with them. Yeah, well, let me jump in there and, and maybe think aloud a bit because there's a circularity to all this that's deeply depressing to me. The tech industry, and I would include really the media, all of media under that umbrella, feeds on our distracted condition. And that means the content it produces is increasingly designed for a distracted population. And the more we consume this content, the more attention-seeking and clickbaity it gets, and therefore the more attention-seeking and clickbaity our minds get. And I've heard you mention Marshall McLuhan before, and he's a Canadian media theorist. And he had this famous phrase that people may know, even if they don't know where it came from, the medium is the message. And the basic point there was that we start to resemble our dominant tools of communication. We learn about the world through the TV. We start to think like the TV. We start to see the world through the eyes of TV. We learn about the world through the internet. We start to think and communicate like the internet. And you know, all these human activities that play out on these platforms start to resemble them too. You know, the way we do politics now has become a reflection of TV and the internet and the commercial incentives that drive it. Politicians now compete to capture our attention and they have to behave in increasingly ridiculous ways to do that because that's how you get attention in this marketplace shaped by these technologies. So it just feels like a really vicious loop, a doom loop that we're just spinning around <laughs> in, like, like a, a hamster in a wheel. 
Sorry, that was a lot of ranting. No, no, no. I think you put that brilliantly. The only word I would disagree with is doom, because there's a way out of that, right? And there's a way out of it that I think I think it helps us to think about historical analogy and then see how we can apply it to the, the thing that's causing that phenomenon you're brilliantly describing. And I learned about this initially from Jaron Lanier, brilliant tech dissident and indeed brilliant technologist. Funny, Jaron said to me, he used to be an advisor on a lot of dystopian movies like Minority Report. And he said, I've stopped doing it because I would design these horrific dystopian technologies to warn about the future. And then all these tech people would watch it and go, that's really cool. How do we invent that? And he's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant. What a great idea. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So he said to me, it used to be common for people to paint their homes with lead paint and to put leaded gasoline in their cars. I remember my mother putting leaded gasoline in her car. And it had been known, actually going all the way back to ancient Rome, that exposure to lead is really bad for you. The architect Vitruvius begged the Romans to not use lead pipes. By the 1920s, the science was really clear that exposure to lead is bad, and particularly bad for children's ability to focus and pay attention. But the lead industry funded an entire kind of denialist bullshit pseudoscience. But by the 70s, the evidence was so clear that there began to be movements of ordinary citizens, it was mostly mothers, saying, look, this is really damaging our children's brains, we won't allow it. Now, it's really important to notice what they didn't do. They didn't say, let's ban gasoline. They didn't say, let's ban paint. They said, let's ban leaded paint and leaded gasoline. They targeted the specific element that was damaging people's attention. And what I learned is there's a, a comparable element in social media that we can deal with through regulation. We had to have a movement to demand this aspect of regulation and to deal with the 11 other big causes of our attention crisis that I write about in the book that is analogous to lead, right? I think because of this, that's why it's a downward spiral at the moment, but it's not a doom spiral because we can deal with that underlying mechanism. We need to ban the current business model, what Shoshana Zuboff, Professor Shoshana Zuboff brilliantly called surveillance capitalism. We need to just say that a business model premised upon discovering the weaknesses in your attention in order to hack them and sell them to the highest bidder is fundamentally immoral and inhuman, like leaded paint, and we will not allow it. Okay, but let's imagine we do that. What happens the next day when I open Facebook? Does it just say, sorry, guys, we've gone fishing? Of course not. What would happen is they would move to a different business model. And we all have experience of two possible alternative business models. One is subscription. Everyone knows how Netflix and HBO work. Or another model that literally everyone listening to has experience with is before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets, we had cholera. So we all paid to build the sewers and we all own the sewers together, right? I own the sewers in London and Las Vegas. You own the sewers in the city where you live. It may be that just like we own the sewage pipes together, we might want to own the information pipes together because we're getting the attentional equivalent of cholera and the political equivalent of cholera. Now, you'd want to make sure, be very important, that was independent of government, of course. But whatever the alternative model we adopt is, the crucial thing is to understand, in this different model, your attention is no longer the product they sell to the real customer, the advertiser. Suddenly, you're the customer. So Facebook and all the so other social media apps have to say, what does Sean want? Oh, Sean wants to be able to pay attention. Let's design our app not to maximally hack and invade his attention and ruin it. Let's design our app to help him heal his attention. Oh, Sean wants to be able to meet up with his friends offline. Let's design our app to facilitate him meeting up with people online instead of endlessly arguing with people about bullshit. There's all sorts of ways. That's completely technologically feasible. The people I interviewed in Silicon Valley could design that attention-healing Facebook in a week. So instead of being a vacuum designed to suck up all your attention, 
it could become a trampoline designed to send you back into the world with better attention. This is entirely politically feasible. But just like the lead industry was never going to say, you know what, guys, I think we've made enough money. Let's just stop doing this, right? They were never going to say that. They had to be made to do it. I would argue we need an attention movement to reclaim our attention and focus, that we're in a race. On the one hand, you've got all these factors that are invading and harming our attention. And they're only becoming stronger, many of them, not all of them. Now, those forces will win by default if we don't act. This is why, on the other hand, we need to have a movement of ordinary people determined to reclaim our focus and attention. And it requires a shift in perspective. When I couldn't focus and pay attention, really often I would blame myself. I'd say, oh, you're weak, you're lacking in willpower. We need to stop doing that, right? This is being done to all of us. It's a bit like, at the moment, someone is pouring itching powder over us all day and then leaning forward and going, you know what, buddy, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much, right? We need to get out of this psychology and get into a psychology where we tell ourselves we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg for a few little crumbs of attention from his table. We are the free citizens of democracies and we own our own minds and we can reclaim them from these forces if we want to, but we're going to have to do it at two levels. We have to defend ourselves. There are all sorts of things at a purely individual level that people can do that I go through in the book and that I do that have massively improved my attention. But we're also going to have to take on those forces that are pouring itching powder all over us in very targeted and evidence-based ways. Well, I guess I'm not even sure how I feel about the likelihood of of overturning that model or the, the obstacles we'll confront while seeking to overturn that model. I'm inclined to agree with your general thesis here because it aligns with the experiences of my own life. And those are what I know best. But you do acknowledge early in the book the incompleteness of some of the evidence here. And you even write that, look, we don't have any long-term studies tracking these changes in our ability to focus over time, in part because this is a new thing or it's being driven by new things. So, you know, I do have to ask, right, how much of this is anecdotal and speculative and how much of it is empirical and data-driven? I mean, there's definitely something there or here, and I suspect most of us can feel what's happening to our attention in our own lives. God knows I can. But I guess the question is, how much do we really know at this point, right? If the studies we do have are limited or flawed or whatever, how limited and circumscribed should our conclusions be, at least at this point? Yeah, it's a really important question. And one, as you know, that I grapple with throughout the book. Yeah. So there are two ways that I think we could reasonably reach the conclusion that we're in an attention crisis. So the ideal way would be if somebody 200 years ago, 150 years ago, even a century ago, had begun to administer attention tests to ordinary people and that they have been done every year since, right? That would be perfect evidence. Then we would have a very high degree of confidence in the same way that we know that IQ tests have been administered in pretty similar ways for more than a century now. No one did that. That data wasn't gathered. So we can't draw a conclusion that way. But I think there are reasonable ways we can infer from other substantial bodies of evidence. So if you think about these factors that I write about in Stolen Focus that demonstrate that attention, that I argue demonstrate that attention is getting worse, let's look at a specific one. So there is overwhelming scientific evidence that if you sleep less, your attention will get worse. If you stay awake for 19 hours, your attention will be as bad as if you were legally drunk. For all sorts of reasons, when you're sleeping, your brain is repairing and healing itself. The evidence for that couldn't be more overwhelming. You need to sleep well in order to be able to pay full attention. 
We also have pretty good evidence. There's a consensus in the field. It's not unanimity, but there's a strong consensus in the field that we sleep significantly less than we used to. In Britain, people sleep an hour less than they did in 1942, and children sleep 85 minutes less than they used to. And in children, when they don't sleep, that will often manifest as mania and running around a lot. Those are both studies in Britain, although there's similar research in the United States. Only 15% of Americans wake up feeling refreshed. Figures for the US are staggering. The US National Sleep Foundation says we Americans sleep 20% less than they did a century ago. Even if that was the only change that had happened, that alone would be causing a really significant attention crisis. And of course, that change interacts with a lot of the other changes. If you have a night where you sleep six hours, you're going to be more inclined to just scroll and scroll and scroll the next day, right? So it leaves you more vulnerable to these invasive technologies. There's overwhelming evidence that when you try to do more than one thing at a time, your attention degrades for all of them, right? You do all of the things you're trying to do less competently, you make more mistakes, you remember it less, and your attention gets worse. There's very strong evidence that we are all trying to do more things at what the average teenager now believes they can follow seven forms of media at the same time. It's very clear that would not have been the case 20 years ago, and it would have been unthinkable for your grandparents and my grandparents. So if you look at a whole series of those trends... Each of them individually has a body of evidence from sociology and from experimental psychology that show that each of those trends in the short term damage your attention, and there's evidence those trends have been accelerating in the longer term. Therefore, I think it is reasonable to infer that we are really facing this crisis. Now, there's an important objection to that, where you could argue, yes, those factors are degrading attention, but maybe there's countervailing factors that are occurring at the same time that are improving attention. And I do think there's a few that I go through in the book. But tell me what you think of that argument, Sean, because I'm curious about your take on it. You know, I'm ambivalent about a few things. I mean, is it possible that we haven't so much lost a capacity to pay attention, but that how we use our attention has simply evolved from long, sustained periods of concentration to a kind of superpower ability to pay attention to many, many things at once? Or is that belief that we can juggle different things at the same time just a self-deception? Again, I'm reaching here for a counterpoint because what you're saying seems to me fundamentally correct. And I know you say in the book that we really can only think about one thing at a time. And I guess I feel that subjectively in my own life, but is that really true? I mean, maybe our attention has just gotten more complicated and diversified. And I guess you could look at it one way and think of it as degraded, but I guess you could look at it another way and see it as, oh, we've become super multitaskers or something like that. But you don't buy that, right? You think that really is a a kind of self-deception. We have a very strong body of scientific evidence on this, and the findings are very clear. So let's think about a study that Professor Larry Rosen has presented. Very simple study. You get a load of students to watch a lecture. They all watch the same lecture. They're divided into three groups. The first group receives no text messages. The second group receives four text messages. The third group receives eight text messages during the lecture. And then they all do a test on what was in the lecture. And unsurprisingly, the people who got four text messages did significantly worse than the people who did none. And the people who received eight text messages did even worse than them. And interestingly, students accurately predict how much it will damage their ability to focus and pay attention. So students who are asked... If you're interrupted during a lecture, how much will that damage your performance on the test? Guess it will damage their performance by 30%. And they're right. It damages their performance by 30%. The technical term for this is the switch cost effect. And it's 
a very widely documented phenomenon. So it would be tempting in the abstract. I think there's a period in my life when I would have said this, partly to rationalize my own addictive behavior. I would have said, well, it's not that I'm focusing less. I'm just focusing differently. I'm just, you know, look at me. I'm really fast. I can go between loads of things. But Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the world who I interviewed at MIT, said to me, look, you have to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. This is a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed significantly in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any timescale you and I are going to see. This is just a limitation of the human brain. So when Professor Miller's colleagues get people into labs and get them to think they're doing lots of things at the same time, what actually they invariably discover is that you're not doing lots of things at the same time. You're switching very rapidly between those tasks. Your consciousness papers over it because it gives a seamless impression of consciousness, but you are very rapidly juggling between those tasks. And that invariably comes with a cost. Now, with a great deal of effort, in the short term, you can overcome some of those costs, but it profoundly degrades your focus and attention. We live in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of all these interruptions. So the evidence just on being interrupted is really, really strong. Another study that really drove it home for me is Professor Michael Posner at the University of Oregon found that if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But loads of us never get 23 minutes spare. The average CEO of a Fortune 500 company only gets 26 minutes a day without being interrupted. So it's very tempting to believe, I want to believe, that we can just adapt. And of course, the human brain is extraordinarily adaptable. Think about how different the environment we live in is to even how our grandparents lived. But when it comes to many of the aspects of how we live, we can adapt, but it comes with a huge cost. And the adaptation we've made to being hugely overwhelmed and trying to do everything at once, one of the costs of that is that our attention is significantly worse. It's not just that we're using our attention differently the way we are using our attention means we are less competent and less able to attend to things that matter. So it's not just that these are hunches. Now, of course, there is a perfect bar of evidence that we would all like to meet, that we can't meet with this. This is an extremely complicated phenomenon with many factors. Some of them, there's only small amounts of evidence. And some of them, there's really substantial amounts of evidence, like the switch cost effect or sleep. Some of them, there's a big scientific debate. Those two, there's not that much debate, actually. They're pretty rock-solid pieces of evidence. So I do think it is reasonable to make those inferences. Now, it is reasonable to say, are there countervailing trends happening at the same time that are improving people's attention? I do think there are some. They're hard to quantify. An obvious one is lead, right, which we mentioned before. The fact that we are all exposed to much less lead than people were 30 years ago. The CDC, the Center for Disease Control, says that the effect that should be having is a boost of three to five points of every child's IQ on average in the United States. So that we would expect that effect to significantly boost our attention. Now, there's again a debate about, yes, but other pollutants have increased in the atmosphere, that there is lots of evidence damage our attention and focus. So has that countervailed the effect? There isn't a kind of mulching, calculating machine into which we can put all of this. What I do feel very confident of is there are a significant number of trends that are harming our attention. We can deal with those trends. A social movement, I slightly jokingly say we should call it attention rebellion, but a social movement that deals with those trends will produce a society with better focus. I think the evidence for that is clear and persuasive. Other reasonable people will disagree and will put countervailing arguments. I also think, though, even if you're not certain, 
I think with any amount of risk, you should proceed based on the balance of risk, right? And if there's even a 30% chance that all these factors are harming our attention, and I would put the odds much, much higher, then I would argue that it's prudent to act. I think the people who say, well, there's some uncertainty here, therefore let's wait for perfect evidence, that seems to me foolhardy. Where there is a substantial risk of harm, we should ask, well, what would we do to deal with that harm and weigh the effects of those factors? And to be clear, the things that I argue in the book based on the evidence would significantly improve people's attention. Things like banning surveillance capitalism, moving to a four-day week, uh, restoring childhood so children can play and exercise outside again without adult supervision. These are all things that would make our lives better anyway. I think the evidence is very persuasive that we need to do these things. But if I'm wrong, what's the worst outcome? You'll be hacked and invaded less by social media, you'll be less overworked, and your kids will get to play more. Well, okay, I think based on the appreciation of the balance of risk and based on assessing, well, how risky are the solutions? They don't seem to me to be risky. They seem to be good things to do anyway. I think the case for us acting is very powerful. I appreciate your honesty at the end of the book where you say, look, I don't have all the answers here and you haven't even figured it out in your own life like the rest of us. <laughs> I certainly agree that, you know, banning surveillance capitalism and moving beyond the endless growth model would be good things. I'm not sure that's going to happen. I don't see a lot of reasons to be optimistic that it will, but it's certainly worth fighting for. Like you, when I think about the things we've got to do to deal with this attention crisis, I can feel daunted and go, oh, is this ever going to happen? Are we ever going to be able to summon the attention and energy to do this? These are very big and powerful forces we have to take on. And when I think that, I think a lot about my grandmothers, who I loved. One of my grandmothers raised me because my mother was ill. So my grandmothers were the age I am now. I'm 43. In 1963. So one of them was a working class Scottish woman in kind of a housing project in Scotland. And the other one was a Swiss peasant woman living in a wooden hut on the side of a mountain. Both of them had left school when they were 13, even though the men in their families went to school longer because no one gave a shit about women learning anything. My Swiss grandmother, she loved to draw and paint, but people told her to stop being so stupid and get into the kitchen. So when they were the age I am now, neither of them were allowed to have a bank account in their own names because they were married women. It was legal for their husbands to rape them as it was legal everywhere in the world for a man to rape his wife. In practice, it was legal for their husbands to beat them because the police would never intervene in domestic violence. My Swiss grandmother was not even allowed to vote. And I think about how daunting that must have seemed to my grandmothers. We're not talking a thousand years ago. This is when they were the age I am now, and I knew and loved these women. And then I think about my niece's life, right? My niece is 17. Her name's Erin. She loves to draw and paint. When we saw her drawing and painting, we didn't say, shut up and get into the kitchen. We said, great, let's start looking up art schools. Now, I don't want to underestimate how far we've still got to go in achieving liberation for women. But the gap between my grandmother's lives and my niece's life is almost incalculable. So when people say to me, and when I think to myself, oh my God, these forces are so powerful. Just take big tech to name one of the 12 factors that I write about that are damaging our attention. I remind myself, big tech is not 100th as powerful as men were in 1963 when my grandmothers were the age I am now. Men controlled every country in the world, 
almost every company in the world. They controlled every police force in the world. And they had, ever since those institutions have been created, right, with the exception of a handful of hereditary female monarchs, right? And women there didn't say, oh, God, this has been going on for thousands of years. We're never going to win this one. Let's just accept being subordinated. Let's just cope. Let's just accept we're never going to have bank accounts. We're never going to have the vote. Our husbands can beat the shit out of us. No, they said, we're not going to take this anymore. And women banded together and some sympathetic men and just said no. So yes, we're facing big forces, but many big forces in the past have been taken on and overcome. I appreciate that sentiment. And to say that something is difficult is not an argument against doing it. And everything seems impossible until it isn't, from the abolishment of slavery to the emancipation of women and on and on and on. That's the history of social movements. So I'm glad you said that. Obviously, tackling these things on the collective level is going to be a process. But in the more immediate, what can individuals do in their own lives today to defend themselves and their own attention against this onslaught? There's loads of things people could do. I'll just quickly give you two examples. So in the corner of the room, I have something called a K-safe. It's a plastic safe. Very simple. You take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid and you turn the dial and it will lock away your phone for anything between five minutes and a whole day. I use that for four hours a day. I would not have been able to write my book if I didn't use it. So, and I stress a lot of people hear me saying that and go, God, I can't do that. That's why we need to change the way we live so that more people are freed up to do this. That's one example. Another example is I sleep much more. I prioritize sleep much more than I used to. I used to think of sleep as wasted time. Absolutely don't do that now. Another thing is I've changed the technique I adopt when I can't focus. So before, when I couldn't focus, like I mentioned before, I would go into this negative spiral. You're lacking in willpower. You're not strong enough. Now, I don't do that. And I learned about this from an amazing man named Professor Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. You have no idea how long it took me to learn to say that. So now what I do is instead of going, what's wrong with you? I say, okay, how can you create the conditions to maximize your chances of getting into a flow state now? Everyone listening will have experienced a flow state. A flow state is when you're doing something and you really get into it and your sense of time and ego fall away and you're just in it and your attention gushes forward. The way one rock climber put it is when you're in flow, it's like you feel like you are the rock you're climbing, right? And flow is the deepest form of attention that human beings can provide. And it's also, interestingly, the form of attention that feels least difficult. When you get into flow, it's not like, oh, how do I slug through this? It comes effortlessly. So obviously, I want to think a lot about how do we get into flow? So I went to interview the scientist who first identified flow states and did 50 years of research on it. Incredible man, Professor Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. I think I did the last ever interview with him because sadly he died not long afterwards. And he learned a huge amount about this, but he discovered there are three factors that can maximize your chances of getting into flow states. The first is you have to choose one clear goal. If you're trying to do more than one thing at a time, you will not get into flow. The second thing is you have to choose a goal that's meaningful to you. So for me, it would be writing. For you, it might be painting. And thirdly, it will hugely help if you choose a goal that is at the edge of your comfort zone, at the edge of your abilities. So let's say you're a medium talent rock climber. If you just try to climb over your garden fence, that's not going to get you into flow. Equally, if you suddenly try to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, that's not going to get you into flow either. It's just going to overwhelm you. 
you want to choose a slightly higher and harder rock face than before. So now when I feel my attention flag, I'm like, okay, there's no guarantee, but how can I maximize my chance of getting to flow? Okay, choose one goal, one clear goal, make it meaningful to you and do something that's at the edge of your abilities, that's pushing you. So that's one of the techniques I use. Obviously, there's dozens and dozens of things I do that I write about in, in Style and Focus as well. But those are things that have really helped me. And I would say that these individual changes, all of them together, have improved my attention really significantly. But I also want to level with people. Individual action is brilliant. I'm passionately in favor of it. And there's a limit to how far it will take you because then you'll bump into these collective factors. Again, to go back to that metaphor from the beginning, it is like running up a down escalator. You can learn to run faster and faster, but if the escalator is going down faster and faster, you're going to stay in the same place. That's why we've got to also deal with the factors that are weighing on all of us. We've got to do both. Yeah, I agree. Our attention is, in my opinion, the most important resource in our lives. And it is truly insane how thoughtlessly we give it away. Hmm. And I look back on my days and my years, and I regret all the dumb trivialities that consumed my attention. You know, William James was right that your life experience really is what you choose to pay attention to. Because in the end, your life is just the sum total of your moment to moment experiences. That's it. That's your life. And if we've lost control over what we pay attention to, we have really lost control of our lives. I think you put that really well. And I think you've really drawn out some of the most important and challenging themes of it. I think you're totally right. A life where you can't pay attention is such a diminished life. And I really believe we can deal with these factors. I think a lot about Dr. James Williams, who was a senior Google strategist, horrified by what they were doing. He quit and is now, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the world. He said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone thought to put a handle on it. The internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We don't have to tolerate living in an environment. This is me saying this now, not him. We don't have to tolerate living in an environment that profoundly degrades our attention and focus. We don't have to accept this being done to our children. It's not inevitable. It's not just a product of the modern world. It's not just a product of the existence of technology. These are factors that are very specific to key aspects of how they live that can be fixed. In a way, I left the book much more optimistic than when I started. My story about why I couldn't pay attention at the start was, I'm weak and someone invented the smartphone, right? And I think those are the dominant stories where most people who say to them, why can't you pay attention? They give some variant of that. And that really oversimplified story, that wrong story, in fact, has disabled us, right? That's the story that, of course, big tech wants us to believe. It's left us inert when we don't need to be inert. We can absolutely fight back and regain our focus and attention. And most importantly, I would argue we have to. How are we ever going to deal with something like the climate crisis? A species of people alternating rapidly between TikTok and Snapchat is not going to be able to summon the collective focus and attention to deal with big crises. And we are facing, my God, the threat to democracy, the climate crisis, the COVID crisis. There's a whole array of huge crises facing us. I don't think we can solve any of them if we don't solve our attention crisis. Actually, James Williams gave me another really good metaphor for this. He said, imagine you're driving your car and someone throws a huge bucket of mud over the windshield. 
doesn't matter what destination you're driving to, the first thing you have to do is clean your windshield, right? Otherwise, you ain't going to get anywhere. In a similar way, if we don't deal with the attention crisis, if we're just broken stumps of ourselves, alternating tasks every three minutes, as the average office worker in the United States is, then we're not going to be able to get to the places we need to go. The further in we go on the attention crisis, the harder it will be to get out. Because to get out, we have to be able to summon the attention and focus to take on these big forces that are doing this to us. Or like with the climate crisis, we hit tipping points where it's much harder to find our way back. My worry is if we don't act quite soon, if attention continues to degrade and degrade, there's a vision of that. I went to interview a guy called Professor Suna Lehman in Copenhagen who did the first study that I would argue proves that our collective attention span is getting worse. And Professor Lehman, when I interviewed him, had just seen, I think just seen, a photograph of Mark Zuckerberg. And it's Mark Zuckerberg in a room where everyone is wearing a virtual reality headset, except Mark Zuckerberg. And he's walking freely around them. And Professor Lehman said to me something like, I looked at this picture and thought, fuck, if we don't do something, that's where we're headed, right? Now, that doesn't have to be our future. We can choose a future where us and our children can focus. But we're on a trajectory for that future. We're on a trajectory there. We're going to have to fight to get ourselves off that trajectory. And we've got to raise our consciousness. We've got to understand why this is happening. We've got to defend ourselves as individuals. We've got to defend our kids. And then we've got to fight back. Peacefully fight back, I stress. <laughs> well, on that note, look, I, I just want to say I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I enjoyed the book. This is something I have thought about. I'm at least trying to think about. And you gave me a better framework for doing that. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you being here. Oh, I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Sean. Johan Hari, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drostowska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. And thanks to Victoria Dominguez, the Vox Audio Fellow, for her help on this episode. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends and please rate and review. And join us on Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. 